How are you doing? This is a rhetorical question. How are you doing with the Creator? How are you doing with the Lord? How are you doing with the one you know to be master? Think about it as I talk. How are you, a Christian? How are you doing? Are you okay with him? What's going on? Are there secrets that you're ashamed of? Is there anything in the way? Have you fallen into patterns, old patterns you wish not to speak about? Do you feel, even though a Christian alienated from the one who redeemed you? I mean it. How are you doing? I suspect some would say, not so good. That's the way it is whenever we gather in an assembly such as this. I know we smile and sing and greet each other warmly, but there's the private agony that many of us go through. Stay private, not asking you to do anything that would embarrass you. I just want you to take the time to reflect. Do you feel close? Do you feel in the Lord's embrace? Does he have something against you? Um, I wish tonight, I guess we can't say wish. I pray tonight um, you leave um, in good stead with the one you know to be the Lord, the most miserable creature on earth, I do not think is one who doesn't know him. Sadly, some in that category are blissfully ignorant of his holiness and the consequences of sin. Therefore, they enjoy it all the more. I think the most miserable creature on earth is a son or a daughter of the king who knows better, who has had it better, who reflects on better days, which are not his or her experience today. There's this sense of alienation from the one you know who has done all that is necessary for the alienation to be removed. I hope tonight you leave with all that resolve. The text we'll look at lends itself to that. What could you do? What have you done as a Christian that could shake God's interest in you? What could you do to dissuade him from loving you? I want to know that. What is there? Could you wander and drift? Could you sin to such an extent that your human nature compromises his divine nature? I guess that's the question. Do you have that power over God? Could you inhibit his intent to do good by you? Could you inhibit his commitment to love you in spite of you? Do you have that kind of influence over God's nature? Could human nature, you see what I mean? Could human nature diminish divine nature? 
Come on. You, it cannot. Don't misunderstand. A sinning Christian misses out on blessing. Of course. I don't want to minimize that. But a sinning Christian will never forfeit the intentional love of the Father. It's not possible. I want you to be reminded of that as we look to the text tonight and get it together before we leave later on. I was in England years ago. I was replacing a guy there who was a missionary leader. I was to take his place. We were in a ministry to military, American military personnel. I was his replacement. He had the reputation of being kind of a spiritual giant. I was intimidated. We got together. He was getting ready to sort of pass the baton to me. And in the course of conversation, he made a statement I'll never forget. He said, you know, Stuart, it wasn't out of context. It was in a context. He said, you know, Stuart, I don't remember in the last several years being out of fellowship with God for more than 15 minutes. And I thought, either this guy is Moses, or he's lying through the skin of his teeth. Well, it was me I misunderstood entirely, and I guess he could discern that. And he said, oh, no, no, don't misunderstand. I did not say I didn't sin against God. I said, when I recognized it, being convicted by his spirit in me. I acknowledged it as soon as I could. I thanked him for forgiving me. I did not add to the totality of his atoning sacrifice by crucifying myself. I asked him to strengthen me so that I would not do it again. I thanked him for casting all my sins behind his back And I got up and charged right into his lap as if he's my daddy and as if nothing had separated us, nothing had interfered with our relationship. I acted just as if I had not sinned because he told me that's how upon confession of sin I am to act. And he said those processes over the years did not separate me from God, did not total more than 50. 15 minutes. That's someone who understood that his human nature could not compromise, detract, or diminish God's gracious and merciful divine nature. Get it together before you leave tonight. Stop dragging yourself around, waiting until you think you have punished yourself enough to figuratively speaking look your holy father in the eye stop it hasn't jesus the only begotten son suffered enough repent confess that simply means agree with god turn to him Thank him for forgiveness obtained for you 2,000 years ago. He saw it all coming, in other words, when he said, Father, forgive that one and that one and that one because they are clueless. He 
covered by his blood, the scarlet nature of your sin, so that the full outpouring of the Father's wrath was on the Son and therefore need not be on the adopted sons and daughters. So get it together. You're not impressing God by walking around with a load of guilt and shame. Call it what it is. I watched a report today of someone who committed a serious impropriety, a Christian who in confession referred to it as a mistake. I made a mistake. I don't think that's confession. I think that's a euphemism, a politically correct euphemism. euphemism. He committed an act of iniquity, transgression, sin, call it all that. I don't want to, to be too harsh to the guy. I have the same nature he does, but don't try to clean it up by paring it down. Let Jesus clean you up by confessing the real deal. Don't call sin a mistake. Jesus didn't die for mistakes. He died for sin so that the sinner can be a son or a daughter of God who sometimes sins. If you are in that category, get it together with your father before we take leave of one another tonight. Head up, shoulders back, just as if I had not sinned. Because your sin nature cannot compromise your father's divine nature And his divine nature is characterized by an intentional interest in being gracious and merciful to you. That's the way it is. I'll show you. It's in Numbers chapter 20. Finally, we'll get there. Numbers 20, just the first few verses, so don't worry. We won't be here for more than two more hours. (laughs) Numbers chapter 20. I think you'll appreciate this text. Numbers 20, remember, Israel's in the wilderness. That's the context. Remember, they're not in bondage. They're on the way to the land of promise, but they're in-betweeners. They're not where they used to be. They're not yet where they uh, want to be. They're in-between in the wilderness. In other words, they're us's. We're not where we used to be. We're not yet where we're going to be. We're in the wilderness journey. That's why this book of Numbers is intensely relevant to us today. Verse 1, chapter 20. Then the sons of Israel, the whole congregation, came to the wilderness of Zin. It could very well have uh, been written wilderness of sin, because that surely characterized their experience in this desert, but it actually is the wilderness of Zin. Zin. Uh, It's a place in in the Sinai Peninsula, which you have heard of, I'm sure, in various ways. It's in the, in fact, northeast corner of the Sinai Peninsula is the wilderness of Zin. It's a dry, arid, barren desert area. That's where they are, and we know not only where they are, but when they were there. It says in the first month. Yeah, but wait, we're in chapter 20 of Numbers. They're only in the first month? Not the first month of the beginning of their wilderness wanderings. In fact, they're in the first month of the last year of their wilderness wanderings. This is the 40th 
year. They wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. This is the 40th year of Israel's wilderness wanderings. Soon she will enter into the land promised to her by God. So it's the first month. And the people stayed at Kadesh. Have you ever heard of that? It may be familiar to you, Kadesh, because it's been mentioned earlier in Numbers around chapter 13. Here's what happened. Israel was in camp then, way back in chapter 13, at the same place. They sent into the land of promise some, some, some people on a reconnaissance mission, you know, spies. Not technically spies in the espionage sense. Frankly, their task was to confirm to the people that what God said was true. It is a land of milk and honey. So they went and they returned, but they didn't come with that rather positive report. They said, Oy vey, there are giants in the land, and in comparison, we are like grasshoppers. What? God said, it is yours. And they dissuaded the populace from going into the land. And the populace in Israel, they started turning against Moses and saying, what is your problem? Why did you bring us here? We could have died in Egypt. We didn't have to come here to die. We're going to die. And God watched. And God intervened not to destroy, but to discipline. Because the Bible says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. There's so much that has to be pruned off of God's kids. And so God said, you're not ready for the land of promise. You're still acting like an enslaved, put-upon people. You're still mastered. You're still in bondage. I have to prune it off of you. And so for 30 Eight years, I'm rounding off, it's about 37 and a half, they wandered around almost in literal circles until an entire generation of kvetchers, we call them complainers, grumblers and moaners, died off in the wilderness. And now, 38 years later, they're back at exactly the same place. They started 38. Listen to me. A person who's part of the covenant, you and I, new covenant, these people, old covenant, we're going to make it into our place of promise because it's all a function of the grace and strength and goodness of God. But I got to tell you, we can sure spin our wheels in the process. We can sure go about in circles. We can sure miss out on opportunities to make an eternal a deposit that gives us an eternal investment. So here they are, 38 years later. They're at exactly the same place. And indeed, the generation of old had just about entirely died off. And one in particular is mentioned now here. See where it says, Now Miriam died there and was buried there. She's a significant personage in ancient Israel, a songwriter, a prophetess, a leader in Israel, and not only that, she's a sister of somebody. Do you know who? It's Moses' sister, Aaron's sister. She dies. 
It's a poignant moment. Miriam won't get to be in the promised land. She won't get to see. Surely Moses, the lawgiver, her brother knows about this. Undoubtedly, the grieving process for him, keep this in mind, is beginning here. His sister died in the desert. Well, uh, what happened in that locale is told us in verse 2. See, there was no water. Do you know how serious that is? In that we're getting a little bit of a hint of it, aren't we? No rain, drought. They're in the desert. In the Middle East, water is of more value than gold and silver. So in this place, at this time, there was no water for the congregation. And so they did, I'm sure you agree, the appropriate thing. They assembled themselves against Moses and Aaron. Take a look at human nature. It's just it's not a pretty sight. I just... I mean, they, they, they attacked the leaders. And the people thus contended with Moses and, and spoke, saying, if only we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why then have you brought the Lord's assembly into this wilderness for us and our beasts to die here? Why have you made us come up from Egypt only to bring us into this wretched place? It's not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there water to drink. Does that sound familiar? Oh my goodness, human history repeats itself, huh? That's exactly what their fathers done did. Could I tell you something, parents? Get it together. Because if you don't, you're going to pass on what's broke to the next generation. Get it together. If there are patterns you can't deal with, get help. Because if the patterns are not broken in your generation, they will probably victimize the next. The sins of the fathers are visited on the next generation. So here you have an illustration of this kind of thing. Well, then verse 6, Moses and Aaron came in from the presence of the assembly to the doorway of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. I got to tell you something. That's the thing to do. For leaders, for anybody, whenever the plot is thickening, the plot of life, whenever the intensity of the burn is 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 just going up, and you can Then you run away from the crowd, from the news, from, from the TV, from the bank, from the political debates. You run, you run, and you fall down on your face, and you cry, and you remember you remember whose you are, and you remember in whose presence you are, and you remember who you're talking to, and you wait for the glory of the Lord to appear. That's what you do. I memorized this verse the other day. Even though I don't get the stuff the Iwana kids do. Nahum 1.7. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who take refuge in him. Think about it. You, 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 you take refuge in the Lord. And, and he says to you, who are you? I don't know you. Oh, no. He knows those who take refuge. It's a mark of sonship to run to the Father as refuge. He never says, who do I know? 
he says, ah, you came to the right place, my son, my daughter. So, that, so that's what they do. And, and the Lord, verse 7, spoke to Moses saying, take the rod. We don't know whose rod. You would think it's Aaron's rod because not too long ago there was a whole thing with Aaron's rod and it budded and all the rest. But we're not exactly sure. Aaron's rod, Moses had a rod too. I don't know. It doesn't affect a whole lot. It's just something to be intrigued about. Uh, The Lord said, nonetheless, take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, and and assemble the congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes that that it may yield its water. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock and let the congregation and their beasts drink. So, so, So God gave clear directions there, very clear. They're not ambiguous or confusing at all. It's a threefold mandate God gave to. Here it is, the first thing, take the rod. You see it there, right? It's simple, right? It's not complicated. Take the rod. And the second directive, assemble the people. So there, you could even memorize it. First one, take the rod. Second thing God told them to do, it's a commandment, not a suggestion. Assemble the people. And the third thing, speak to the rock. So you got that. Keep it in your mind. Get the rod, get the people, talk to the rock. You got it? We got it. Look at Don't even look at your Bible. I bet you can get it. What's the first one? What's the gut? Yeah, okay, okay, get the rod, you got it. What's the second thing? You get the people, yeah, and what's the third thing? There, we got it. Okay, cool. So, so, so look, verse 9. So Moses took the rod, one for one, right? Moses took the rod from before the Lord, just as he had. So divine directive number one, check it off, complied with. Verse 10. And Moses and Aaron did what? Gathered the assembly. Divine directive number two. Two, four, two. This is really good. And he said to them, Moses said to them, the people, listen now, you rebels, shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Folks, divine directive number three is violated. Divine directive number three is what? Speak to the rock, not yell at the people. You see it? Divine directive number three, verse 11. Then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. Divine directive number three, violated again. God did not say, hit the rock. God said, speak to the rock, you say. Well, Moses lifted up his hand. He struck the rock. Water came forth abundantly, and the congregation and their beasts drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you haven't believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Oh, my. That is a severe penalty. Moses does not get to enter into the land of promise. He only is permitted to see it from afar. He actually saw it from the Jordanian side. That's how they came up, you say. He's on the side, now present-day Jordan. If you look that way... You look over the Jordan River Valley and into the land of Canaan, the land of promise, from somewhere, probably a place called Mount 
Nebo. You can go there today. I have been there. You can stand on it and see the very visual perspective Moses had, though he was not permitted to physically enter the, the land. Quite a severe penalty. Not only that, Aaron didn't even get the view. You'll see soon. He dies. Why such a severe penalty? Folks, instead of speaking to the rock, Moses struck it twice. And in so doing, it is as if he said that the water coming forth depended on him. Don't you see how serious this is? It is as if he persuaded the people in his non unauthorized non-verbals that what is emanating from the rock, the water you so sorely need, is due to me. If I didn't do this, the water would not come forth. And so it says, if you look back at verse 10, shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Shall we? It's water from a rock. You can't do it. Except God reversed the natural order and perform a miracle. And he can. He's not bound by the rules. You know the expression, you can't get water from a rock. Yes, you can if you're the creator. But Moses, in essence, usurped the role of the creator and misrepresented holy, separate categorically different special God by persuading the people, stop yelling, stop grumbling, stop dumping all this on me. Boom, boom, I'll give you water. Oh no. God will use us as vehicles of his plans and purposes, but we must always be circumspect and make sure we know who the author of it is. We're just the vehicle thereof. Moses kind of crossed the line. Not only that, Moses was told to speak to the rock, but instead he struck the rock and he also struck out at God's people. It isn't so much that sometimes leaders cannot call people allotted to his charge to task, but it's an attitudinal thing. Something in Moses, it was just about, I've had enough with you. You, 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 It's not permissible for a representative of the Lord uh, to communicate that because the Lord will never say, I've had enough with you. Not for those who have been redeemed by his blood. It's never over. He'll never have enough. He'll never leave us or forsake us. That's what the Bible... So you see, that's why God said, you've misrepresented me before the, before the people you misrepresented me. And so it's quite a severe... He called them rebels and such they were. But wasn't he also... A great leader, the meekest man ever to have lived, we read in the Bible. But the best of men is but a man at best, right? So the people grumble and the leader growls. That's the way it is. We're all just humans. And we read this in the next verse. Those were the waters of Meribah. It means in Hebrew quarreling or arguing or contention or complaining. And so... The desert years end in the same way in which they began, isn't it? 
complaining, complaining, complaining. Because the sons of Israel contended with the Lord and he proved himself holy. He proved himself holy among, how did he do it? He proved himself in this case holy among them in two ways. Number one, he disciplined his leader, did he not? He proved his holiness, but, 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 but he also did something which I think is absolutely fascinating. In spite of the grumbling of the people, in spite of the growling of the leader, God manifested his graciousness and allowed water to gush forth from the rock so as to provide for the needs of his people and even their animals. So this is where we began. Human nature ain't so hot. It's not a pretty picture. Make numbers 20. It's just a mirror into our own souls. We're the same group of people prone to complain, prone to doubt, prone to wander, prone to turn against one another. I understand that. Your human nature and mine cannot minimize the holy nature of God. To be holy means to be separate, means to be different, means incomparable. So is God. He is absolutely in a category of his own when it comes to the demonstration of grace and mercy. It's not contingent on the behavior of those he chooses to bestow grace to. You see, it's not you do this, I do that. It's I choose to do this no matter what you do because you are mine. That is so hard to wrap our minds around because most of us have never experienced that kind of unconditional love. We don't have any idea what it is. Don't worry about it. Accept it. Your nature is not meant to bring down God's nature. He's holy. He's a cut above His motive always has been to provide for his people in their wilderness wandering. He didn't need Moses getting uh, hot and bothered and bent out of shape and beating the rock as if that physical exertion of human energy is the cause of the provision. No way. These people were under the watch care of their deliverer during their wilderness, and so are you and I. Now, you may not be doing so hot, with regard to this one you know to be your Lord. I understand that. That's what we opened with. You just need to know something. You cannot shake God. He will never leave you or forsake you, and you cannot minimize his serious and stated overwhelming intent to bestow his grace and mercy upon you anyway. And listen to me. You can miss out on plenty of blessing by being rebellious, but you'll never, ever, 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 Miss out on the love of your father. He is going to give you water when you're thirsty in the wilderness. That's what he's about. That's the way it is right there. And so the Lord demonstrated his holy nature, you see. Once Israel repented, not too often, but once Israel repented, and it's recorded, I guess it's such a strategic thing for my stiff-necked people to repent, that it's actually written. And it's recorded in Psalm 106, uh, verses 6 to 8. We have sinned. No kidding. Like our fathers, you got that right. We have committed iniquity. That's right. Not mistakes. We have committed iniquity. We have behaved wickedly. Very accurate. Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. 
They didn't remember your abundant kindnesses, but rebelled by the sea, at the Red Sea. Now get this. Nevertheless. Could you memorize that word? Nevertheless. It's pregnant with theological meaning. I've done this, oh God. Nevertheless, you will never leave me or forsake me. I have distanced myself from you, oh God. Nevertheless, you will never lose sight of me. Nevertheless, he saved them for the sake of his name that he might make his power known. Once saved, always. That's not a Baptist idea. That's a Bible idea. That's a nevertheless idea. Why? It's not because we deserve it. No. I don't deserve it. Nevertheless, he saved them. Get this. It's for the sake of his name that he might be shown to the powers and principalities of the air who behind the scenes are in rebellion against the Most High God, that he might demonstrate to them how holy, unique, separate, other he is. How he is categorically different with regard to the manifestation of his grace and mercy than anyone imaginable. He is saying those who, saving those who don't deserve it, sometimes don't value it, sometimes don't act like it. He is saving them once and forevermore. And it has nothing to do with anything in them. He saved them for the sake of his name that he might make his power to save known. You see it? Folks, get it together with the God you know before you leave tonight. Bounce out of here. Don't crawl out of here. Jump for joy. (laughs) But you don't know me. But you don't know what I've done. I don't have to. I know one word. Nevertheless. Your human nature. Cannot minimize divine nature. You are looking to yourself. You don't look good. You look like the people in Numbers 20. That's why they're in there. They're us. Stop looking at yourself. Look to the rock. I don't mean that, the rock. (laughs) I mean Jesus as the rock. He cannot be dissuaded from bestowing upon you His grace. When once you are his. You are forever his. And he forever. Wants you to be a recipient. Of his grace and mercy. Stop fighting. Renew the fellowship. 
confess sin, repent, change direction, come back to him, enjoy communion with the one who has always had his eye upon you, will never let you go, and will save you for his name's sake that his power to save you might be made known. It's grace, isn't it? It's grace. It's not just, you know what it is? It's grace greater than what? Than all our. Lord Jesus, though we be unfaithful, you remain faithful. And this passage, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? And this passage, what can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus? And this passage, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Help us to get it together tonight. It isn't so good when we walk around as if we're at odds with you. We don't look like light. (laughs) We don't look like living proof of a loving God. We look like living proof of a part-time God who has given up on us. And if we do that, then we misrepresent you just as Moses in this episode did. Help us to represent you well by accepting your intense interest in bestowing upon us grace and mercy that moves us to repentance. Grant us repentance. and Grant us the capacity to be recipients of your amazing grace. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.